<clears throat> it's uh, very good to be here this evening. Certainly appreciate the uh, invitation and, so, and a very good crowd here. You know, it's nice for this to feel normal. <laughs> uh, last last year and a half, two years, it hasn't felt felt very normal. And um, I know that I, it's nice to kind of get in the car and go to a church meeting. I really haven't been uh, past probably about an hour, hour and a half radius. We haven't uh, been been out that much. And it's nice, again, to come out to this part of the kingdom and certainly hope the Lord will bless our time together um, this weekend. Um, I feel like you have been praying for the meeting, and I'm very thankful for that. I hope you'll continue to pray. I've uh, felt like I've had good studying liberty. Um, some of you ministers probably know you need just as good of uh, studying liberty as you need preaching liberty. Mm-hmm. And um, I've never done well with um, having curveballs, as it were. Um, thankfully, the Lord kind of usually impresses my mind. Last Sunday night, I had a little bit of a change when I was on the pew. And uh, there's a reason why I didn't play baseball past t-ball. I didn't do good with curveballs. I usually, usually miss them. But, but um, I feel like I've had clarity this week, though. And if that is according to the Holy Spirit, then I hope that, that the Lord will bless our consideration of that um, this weekend. <clears throat> I ask you to turn to Psalm chapter 65. Psalm chapter 65. And we'd like to focus on verse 4. I uh, appreciate the prayer that was prayed, and uh, I certainly don't know, um, coming and being a visiting minister, I don't know, uh, for those of you that did introduce yourself, uh, maybe two or three times later, maybe we'll figure out what your name is, but I I don't know the circumstances of each of your individual life and your trials, and that was brought out in the prayer, and I appreciate that, I don't know what you need, Um, I don't know... The, the encouragement that you stand in need of, uh, especially with some of the challenging circumstances that we have around us in our country and other things. But I can't think of anything that is a greater encouragement for the trials that we go through in this life than just simply being reminded of the blessing of being chosen, the blessing of election, the blessing of being chosen. Psalm chapter 65 <clears throat> And in verse 4, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of people that struggle with um, low self-esteem in this world. Don't feel like anyone really cares about them. Don't feel valued, feel beaten down and trodden down with the things of this world. And again, they, they can develop a very low opinion of themselves. Well, there's nothing that should, if you're ever struggling with those kind of thoughts, if you're ever struggling with depression or if you're struggling with uh, not feeling loved, not feeling valued, depending on the circumstance of life that you're in. I can't think of anything that should resonate and lift our hearts more than to think about the fact that before the foundation of the world, 
God chose to love you. God chose to love you individually. You know, there's a lot of uh, talk in the denominational world about choosing to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I want to tell you tonight, you need to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. <laughs> now, we need to get the right effect of that, right? Uh, that doesn't have anything to do with heaven. But salvation is personal, right? Salvation's personal. And to think about the fact that God chose me. <laughs> God chose me before the foundation of the world. Is there anything that could... That could Lift my spirits more than that. That the God of glory looked out at which a, what a wretched sinner I am and that God saw fit to choose me and love me by nothing more than His own free and sovereign grace to enjoy the privileges of heaven for all of eternity. Well, there's nothing that can lift your spirits more than that, right? And you are in a blessed condition, right? A blessed condition. Blessed is the man whom thou chooses and God chooses. So, first of all, we see that it's God that does the choosing. Okay? Uh, part of the reason that I want to focus on this is there's so many people that don't see election as a blessing. Now, you probably interact with the same people out here in Georgia, uh, same types of people that I do in Mississippi, you know, that uh, when they hear that about God sovereignly choosing a people, by nothing more than His own free and sovereign grace. There's nothing in them that's worthy of being chosen. It's not foreseen merit. It's not foreseen work. Nothing in them. Mm -hmm. And people don't like it. <laughs> people don't like I don't think there's any better message, personally. I don't think there's any better message than that God saw fit to choose you when you didn't deserve it. Now, now I think part of the problem there is they have the wrong perspective and they focus for some reason on who's not chosen. Okay? Now, first of all, uh, the problem we get into is people, again, have the wrong perspective. They have the wrong perspective. And uh, for some reason, they feel like that the, those that are dead in sin, that God didn't choose, that they're all sad and disappointed and just really wishing that God would have chosen them and wishing they would be in heaven. And, you know, they just feel missed out. Well, we, we've got the wrong disposition if we think that. Okay? Um, I really don't think that, that uh, if you read the Bible, um, I don't think there's a real challenge um, believing that election is a biblical doctrine. You know, some people say that. Well, my Bible doesn't say that. Well, then you point them to a couple of different places where, oh, wait a minute, I didn't know that was that was in there. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you, you, you read throughout the New Testament, um, Paul wrote extensively about election. Peter, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. John, writing under the elect lady. Uh, even Jesus. Jesus said, you know, shall I, not, uh, shall I not avenge my own elect? He even used the terminology elect. Um, that uh, Speaking of the last days, um, that if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. Um, Jesus' first message in uh, um, Nazareth. When he went to, uh, he didn't use the word election there in, in Luke chapter 4, but he showed up in that synagogue in Nazareth and he essentially described God's sovereignty and election to bestow blessings upon two Gentiles instead of two Jews. And people got so mad. <laughs> people got so mad at the Son of God <laughs> saying that I am sovereign to choose who I, who I please to choose uh, to pick 
Uh, they got so mad about that that they wanted to kill Jesus and try to push him off to the, to the side of the, uh, uh, the cliff there and push him off. Of course, Jesus, being God, he just walked right through the midst of them. But isn't that interesting that that is, for some reason, and I, I personally don't get it. It actually makes me happy. <laughs> I don't know about it. And I don't say that in a prideful way. Uh, you know, I, I don't deserve to be chosen. I mean, I, I deserve just as much to be chosen as Esau who was hated. Yeah. All right? But it makes me happy to know that God loved me. It makes me happy to know that I, I hope to be among spiritual Jacob, if you will, that God loved. <laughs> but it's just amazing to think about the fact that Jesus Christ, during his first message there at the synagogue in Nazareth, that he essentially said, I'm God, I have the right to choose to bless who I choose to bless. And those people got so mad about it, they wanted to kill the Son of God. You know, then we back up to the Old Testament. You know, there's plenty of elect language in the New Testament, even, even in the Old Testament. What was it that uh, was special about, about Noah? Now, he was a good man, but why was he a good man? Because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What's grace? It's unmarried favor. Right? The only reason why Noah was living a good godly life was because of God, right? Because God chose him. He chose to bestow grace. Grace means you didn't deserve it, right? So that means Noah wasn't that good. Think about Abraham. You know, Abraham wasn't that much different than all the rest of those pagan idolaters in Ur the Chaldees. You, you know that? He, he was worshiping false gods when God chose him. What, what made the difference? <laughs> What made, the God, what made the difference? You know, not anything special about Abraham, really. It was God's choice, right? And God changing the life of Abraham and now to where he's living and walking by faith. You see? So you see God's, God's picture of election um, in the Old Testament as well. So you just can't read the Bible and come to the conclusion that election is not a biblical doctrine. All right? So then the question is, why, why don't people like election? And I've really been meditating on this this week. Uh, maybe you can meditate on it you know, when we leave. But, but um, why, why don't people like the doctrine, generally, of unconditional election? I don't think that we like being told that we're not in control. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think it's a challenge of, of seeing that the Bible teaches it. I don't think that we just like, we don't like letting go of the steering wheel. I mean, we don't like being told that I'm not in control. And, and, and um, if there's anything we want to be in control of, it should be our eternal salvation, right, in a natural, in a natural way. Now, now, once you understand the gospel, <laughs> once you understand total depravity, you don't want to be in charge mm-hmm. of that steering wheel. Why? Because you know you're going to wreck because you're behind the steering wheel dead, right? <laughs> uh, of course, uh, you don't want to be in charge of it, right? But for some reason in our nature... We want to be in control. And then somebody says you tells you, you have no control. Whoa, whoa, that, that's terrifying, right? I have no control over my eternal salvation. But it's much better with God being in control. Right? It's much better with God's choice. With God's choice. Um, you know, like I said before, we really need to have the right perspective when we view election. Okay? And God choosing out of people. I'm afraid that um, many people view um, God's choice of a people similar 
to the television show The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. And, you know, if you've seen that, bless you if you've seen that. Um, I've, I've seen it just enough to know what the premise of it is. And um, if you do watch it regularly, I would encourage you to not do that. <laughs> it uh, presents a very carnal, unbiblical view of romance, engagement, and marriage. Okay, and I'm I'm sad to say I've heard I've bit my tongue when I was hearing some of these conversations. But, you know, some young ladies that were talking about church, what talking about watching The Bachelor. Do you see what happened on the, on the Bachelor last night? Well. If you happen to be, I'm going to be going back to Mississippi pretty soon, so uh, if you happen to be watching that, okay, I think that's trash, and you can just turn it off, okay? Why? Because that is warping your mind about what romantic love looks like in a world. That's, that's the way the world operates, okay? That's not the way that we see in Scripture, but unfortunately, people... Uh, believe that God is choosing out of people and all the people are, are dressed in their you know their best dresses and they're putting the best foot forward and and those that you know you choose one person and then everyone that's not chosen is just heartbroken and they're all worthy of being chosen right they're all at least made it through auditions and we're good enough <laughs> to get on the show you know so everybody's theoretically worthy of being chosen. And then, every, and then one person gets chosen, everybody else just goes home so sad. <laughs> you want to know what that true picture looked like before the foundation of the world? It was a bunch of dead corpses. <laughs> you know that? Did you know that? It was a bunch of dead, rotten, stinking corpses. You know, Lazarus, they said, hey, don't, don't open that tomb. You know, we, we, we had hopes the first couple of days. <laughs> That he'd be resurrected, but we've given up on him now because he stinks. You know, so don't open the, the tomb. When God looked out, what did he see in his foreknowledge? What did he look? What did he see when he looked out? Seeing who he's gonna pick. Who is it? The people that are worthy of it? Psalm uh, 14. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They've done abominable works. There's nothing to do with good and not one. The Lord looked down. Again, you know, some people might begrudgingly admit that election is a, is a biblical doctrine, but God only chose those who he knew would choose him. So conditional election. Well, that's not good news either. <laughs> election has to be unconditional. Why? Why? Because this is exactly how many people would choose him. Okay? The Lord looked down from heaven upon children of men to see if they were ready. Let's give, it a, give them a shot, right? That's what we want. Everybody should get a shot. Okay, this is your shot. This is what God saw. See if there was any that didn't understand to seek God. They are all going to sigh. They're all together become filthy. There's none to do with good. Just in case you thought there was an exception to that. I'm sure you love your grandmama. I love my grandmama too. <laughs> and praise God she was a child of God, I believe. <laughs> but the only reason she was good was because the Holy Spirit of God was in her. She exhibited the fruit of the Spirit, which is goodness. But just in case you think there's an exception to that, there's nothing to do with good. No, not one. Right? So what, what was God looking at for the foundation of the world? Billions of billions upon billions of dead, rotten, stinking corpses. Now, how many of those are you going to pick? How many corpses are you going to pick? 
I agree with whoever said that. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> if I was in God's shoes, looking out at all these dead corpses before the foundation of the world, men that in their own nature are not going to seek me, they're not going to understand, they're not going to act right, and even those that I put my spirit in them, they're going to mess up a lot too. <laughs> if we were in God's shoes, because we're not so full of love like he is, we probably, we may not have chose anybody. We may not have chose anybody. So doesn't it make you feel good? <laughs> doesn't it do your heart some good to know that God looked out on your personal, right? Salvation's personal. Your personal dead, stinking, rotting corpse and said, for some reason, I love him. I lo he chose, right? He chose to love you. Now, some people again focus on the focus on the negative. What about those people that weren't chosen? Well, okay, I can get the fact that God loved Jacob. But what about Esau? What about Esau? Well, Esau wasn't sad. Esau wasn't sad that he wasn't chosen because in his nature he didn't love God. He didn't want anything to do with God. I mean, it uh, out outside of the quickening. It says in a. Uh, Psalm 65 and in verse 4 that we read, um, Best is the man who thou choosest, but then also who thou causest to approach unto thee. All right? You know, why, why did Jacob come unto him in the new birth? Well, because he drew it. <laughs> Jeremiah 31 3. Uh, with uh, loving kindness, I love thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Right? Why does anyone come to Christ? Come to Christ in the new birth because God draws you, right? He chose you, but He also causes you to approach unto Him in the new birth. Now, outside of that drawing power that causes you to approach unto God, how many of the unregenerate dead people, A, have the ability, the answer is no because they're dead, okay? But even if they, you know, we don't need to dwell on hypotheticals too much, but even if they had life, what would they do if they had the opportunity to come? What would they do? They probably would act the same way that a group of people did in the first century in Jerusalem where they crewed out, cried out, crucify him, crucify him. You know, you really need to understand how wretched your nature is. You really need to understand how wretched total depravity is before we understand the gravity of the blessing of being chosen, right? In my nature, I'd be right there with them. In my nature, I would be right there, you know, those, those people who even appeared to be religious. I mean, they were there in Nazareth in the synagogue giving the pretense of religion, but the Son of God described uh, the sovereignty of God in election, and they tried to kill him, Okay? He said, I'm the king of the Jews. He says, I'm the son of God. And what did the mob do? Crucify him. Crucify him. And you say, there's no way I would ever do that. Well, you, I know you probably feel that way right now because you probably have a quickened heart. <laughs> you feel that way. The, the, the unregenerate don't have those kind of thoughts. They, 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 don't, they don't feel that kind of conviction. Okay, But even if they had the ability to choose Christ, what would they do? They would say, crucify him. 
They are in, in our natures. We are haters of God. And, you know, that's hard to believe because I love God. I love God. That's hard to believe that in my nature I'm a hater of God. That's why the gospel has to start with total depravity, right? That's why the gospel has to start with the radical corruption. Because we have no ability to come unto Christ. The only way is that he chooses us and that he causes us to approach unto him. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We have this description of God's choice of um, <clears throat> God's choice of Jacob or Israel, the nation of Israel. And again, I think uh, some of the challenges that, that some people might have with the election is not so much that God chose the people, but why didn't he give everybody a chance? And it's really too bad for those people he didn't choose. Well, um, what you have to understand is that God caused no injury or harm in leaving Esau exactly where he was at. Okay, He caused no injury or harm to anyone that was in that totally depraved state. Instead, he just scooped up a group of people. And I don't mean to be that cavalier because it wasn't that arbitrary. But, but he chose out a group of people to love and to save and he left everyone else exactly where they were. Okay? Now, how did they get there? They got there by their own works. They got there by their own sin. Okay? So, for some reason, I think everybody feels really bad for Esau. (laughs) Esau didn't love God. Esau Esau didn't want to have anything to do with God. We don't need to feel sorry for Esau. (laughs) Instead, you need to instead say, I am Esau. Right? I am Esau in my nature. And I'm just as worthy. I'm just as worthy of God's A, judgment, but I'm just as worthy, which is not at all, of his choice, his love, as Esau. And then when you get that perspective, oh, what a blessing, right? Oh, what a blessing to think about the fact that God saw fit to choose me. Because I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And even if you think that you deserve it today, I want to tell you, you don't. You don't. That's why it's grace. Grace is unmerited favor. You deserved it to be salvation by works. Works is just not good news for anybody. Okay? Deuteronomy chapter 7. And God's speaking of His choice of the nation of Israel, um, of Jacob in particular. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6. For thou art an holy people, and the Lord thy God, the Lord thy God hath chosen thee. Okay? So we're talking about election. God has chosen you to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Now, why did God do that? Why did God saw fit to choose you? The Lord did not set His love upon you, nor choose you. What was, what was the basis? He did not choose you because you were more in number than any other people. So, this was not an advantageous political decision. <laughs> uh, I didn't choose you because you were more in number. Actually, you were on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. 
you were fewest. Why? Why did God why did God choose you? And again, I hope that you make salvation personal. <laughs> yes, it's talking about the elect. Yes, it's talking about God's chosen people as, as a whole. But because the Lord loved you. Because the Lord loved you. And because he would keep the oath. So now it's about God's covenant, too. You know, he chose you. He chose you. But he also made a promise along with that choice. God loved you, and he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. You know, God looked out over all these people that were dead in sins, that weren't worthy of His love, that weren't worthy of His choice. And He saw fit to choose to love a group of people. Not based on any merit, not based on any foreseen good works, but solely by His free and sovereign grace. He saw that before we were even created physically. He saw us before the foundation of the world. He chose us. But that choice was also put in the form of a covenant. He made a promise. He made a promise. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now once you think about um, the church as being the bride of Christ. The bride. You know, again, we think about people that don't get chosen and in our mind, how sad they would be if they don't get chosen. You know, I go back to the uh, to the playground and not getting chosen. You know, for the for the kickball team. You know, and I was usually at the bottom of the rung <laughs> of getting chosen. You feel the dejection, right? And, you know that that six year old agony of not getting chosen on the playground. Um, but it did feel good though to get chosen. <laughs> Those couple times that it happened for me. Uh, <laughs> But um, it feels good to be chosen, though, doesn't it? Does, does that give you some value, uh, some self-worth? You know, I've only been on the uh, the giving side of this, but I bet it feels very um, valuing. I can't get my words right. Of uh, having a man say, I choose you to marry. I choose you. I remember that night from my perspective, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure thankful that Sister Bethany said yes, but um, I can only envision the fullness and the value that you feel when a man says, I choose you, I choose you. Now, out of all of the messages that I got <laughs> and all of the encouragement I got when we were engaged, I can't remember one single person saying, David, why didn't you choose all the rest of the women? <laughs> David, I feel so sad <laughs> that all the rest of these women got, got their hopes up, you know, and, and they were just really hoping that you would choose them. How selfish. I mean, I, mean, I, I want to be as reverent as I can. People, people hur- hurl some pretty bad accusations at God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I mean... Um, that's not fair. 
That's, that's not fair. You're unrighteous. And, and thankfully, Scripture takes care of all that. He answers all those rebuttals, especially in Romans chapter 9. Um, but, uh, you know, people look at God and they say, you're not fair to give everybody a choice. You're not fair to choose everybody. Well, everybody congratulated me. <laughs> you know, and no one looked at me and said, oh, man, it's really so sad for all the rest of these women in the world that you didn't choose them. Why? Why? Because it was... It was my choice, and I chose to bestow my love and favor on whom I chose. And we see that as a good thing, right? Why? I mean, it's a choice. It's a choice, right? It's a choice to bestow favor. And for some reason, we look at the positive of that. (laughs) And when God chose out his bride, why would you feel sorry for the people he didn't choose? before the foundation of the world, right? Why, why would you feel sorry for the non-elect he didn't you? All of us are wretched. <laughs> All of us are totally depraved. All, God would be righteous if he didn't choose anyone. I mean, I don't think you'll really get <laughs> this, uh, sovereign grace until you can sing joyfully with all your heart. And... Uh, and if my soul were sent to hell, thy righteous law approves it well. Now, when you can sing that with gusto, <laughs> when you can sing that with all your heart, you really believe the gospel, right? Because then you understand the gravity, the gravity of what we've been given in Jesus Christ. Because he shouldn't have chosen anybody. He shouldn't have said, and he certainly should not have sent them his only begotten son to die for those wretched corpses? You see? That gives you value. If you need a self-esteem boost, look back from the for the foundation and look at the engagement ring of the Son of God. Because that's what He did, figuratively, if you'll give me a little bit of liberty. That's what He did before the foundation. Now, He didn't... It's not like our, our version of a proposal. Um... The bride didn't choose to accept his proposal, right? <laughs> that's the way we do it in America today. We, that's not how that happened, all right? But he made a promise. He made a promise to his bride before the foundation of the world that said, I'm going to give my life for you. And I'll tell you, there ain't any husband <laughs> that's going to be content after he marries his wife for her to stay apart with, apart from him for forever. So along with that promise... Along with that engagement ring, what did he do? He predestinated, right? He said, my bride, she's coming home with me. (laughs) After all this is over, my bride, she's coming home with me. And that's election and predestination. And people make that complicated. They make it difficult. And for the life of me, I can't see how any of that is negative. Amen? I can't see how any of that is negative. Because the people who aren't chosen don't care. They're dead. They don't care. And it gives such value and blessing if you do love God and you do do feel the Holy Spirit to know that God chose me, right? Mm -hmm. That God chose me before the foundation of the world. Let's go to a couple verses that, again, highlight some of this language. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always. You know, um, well, that's one of the reasons, you know, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Uh, but we need to be joyful, we need to be happy. But what, what reason, regardless of what circumstances are going on in your life, you know, life is mixtures of joy and sorrow, it's a roller coaster, it's highs and it's lows. And if you're in the low moment, and you're in a little bit of a mixture of more sorrow than joy in the moment, um, if you're in one of those valleys, it can be difficult to read verses like this and say, well, you know, in everything give thanks. Yes, sir. Not for everything, but in everything give thanks. One of the reasons that you can do that is regardless of what I'm going through right now, God chose me before the foundation of the world. Right? Mm-hmm. God chose me before the foundation. And He promised. Well, it may, get, it may get rough right now, right? It may get tough in the moment, but He promised me that when all this is over, I'm going to be with Him in heaven. And if you, that's why hope is an anchor of the soul, by the way, yeah. right? You know, because sometimes, you know, till the storm passes by, right? Sometimes that storm's rocking, and sometimes it gets heavy. But then eventually, if that anchor's stable, it's going to get to the end of that anchor. It's going to catch, and it's going to pull you back, right? It's going to pull you back. And that hope is an anchor of the soul. It gives you stability. It gives you stability. And there's nothing that we need to be reminded of more in the midst of those challenging circumstances than God chose me, right? God elected me, and He also elected me, and He predestinated, He predetermined my final destination that I would be with Him in heaven for all of eternity when all of this is over. Doesn't that give you stability in the midst of the challenges of this life? Again, that's why... Scripture calls that an anchor, an anchor of the soul. It gives you stability. So for that reason, we are bound to give thanks always to God. For you individually, like he says here, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Chosen you. You know, um, I'd love to have this discussion with some of the ministers that are here. Y'all come back tomorrow. Um, I, I really just wonder, personally, you know, what name are written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Um, is it David Matthew Wise? I kind of tend to think maybe not. <laughs> um, that, that's the name that I have. Make some references to, you know, a new name. And I don't know, I don't know about all that. But isn't it something to think about the fact that God wrote your name individually mm-hmm. in the Lamb's Book of Life, right? You know... In that moment, not that there's really even moments in eternity, but you know we can't fathom all that. But but in that moment where he was writing that Lamb's Book of Life, if you'll kind of just bear with me before the foundation of the world, there was a moment where he got to line seven billion, right? And he got he got down to my you know my name, you know, and he and he wrote that name. And to think about the fact that God wrote individually my name in the last book of life before the foundation of the world. I can't think of anything that is the better encouragement for depression, for low self-esteem, for not feeling like that anyone cares about you than think about the fact that God was individually thinking about me and he wrote my name in heaven before the foundation of the world. Actually, with that in mind, let's go to, uh, let's go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. In all honesty, this is the verse that 
really kind of got me down this road. Um, Luke chapter 10, and he sends out 70 um, men to cast out devils and preach the gospel and all this. And this appears to be 70 in addition to the 12 apostles. And then they came back and, you know, Jesus said, you go out and cast out devils. And obviously the Lord was with them in that moment. And they came back and they were excited. They were excited. They said, uh, these 70 came back and they returned with joy. They, they, they were excited about what was going on. You know, I can only imagine... Just in a natural sense, how excited I must I would be, you know. They came back with joy and said, "Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through Thy name." You know, uh, you know, we get excited when we see something that we haven't seen before, and uh, uh, I can just only imagine, just in a natural sense, you know, you know how and the apostles were the same way. Um, they were all tr- always trying to one up one another. You know, which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom? You know, and all this, and you know, did you see? the devils that he cast out over here and then he was doing this over here, you know, and then they are just come back and they're swapping stories about, did you see what I, and I mean, they were excited, right? Because that's something they never seen before. That's something they never seen before. And that was a special manifestation of the Holy Spirit here in this time. And it was something to see, no doubt, I bet. Um, especially with some of the uh, instances where Jesus was casting out devils and, you know, the interactions with that and just, it, it must have been something to be a spectator in the middle of all that. So they were really excited about that, right? They were really excited about, man, we're casting out devil left and right, you know. Um, and then doing some other stuff too. But then Jesus said, in response to that, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, and behold, uh, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you, notwithstanding in this rejoice. In other words, don't get too excited, too worked up, about all of these casting out devils and this miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit that we're seeing in this moment. Don't focus on that solely. Notwithstanding, and this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Your names are written in heaven. And you want to know why there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God? <laughs> Nothing in life, nothing in death, you know, principalities, powers, you know, nor things present, nor things to come, all that in Romans chapter 8. You want to know why there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God? It's because God made a covenant before the foundation of the world. He wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, and he sealed that book before the foundation of the world. And is there anything in this world that can change any of those things that I just mentioned? Nope. Nothing. Nothing. And it's great to see. It's great to see a powerful moving of the Holy Ghost among God's people. And um, I mean, I just get happy going to you know church meetings. You know, we haven't even really seen. Honestly, I know personally, I haven't. I haven't seen a moving of the Holy Ghost like we see in the Acts of the Apostles or like we've seen here with, with uh, um, these 70 that were returning. I mean, I haven't seen it even to that degree. But it still gets me really happy when I come to a church meeting, right? Feel the Holy Spirit of God. But what is one of the things we should have the greatest joy over? The greatest joy. Because regardless of what happens here in this world, your names are written in heaven. If you're a child of God, if you love the Lord. And by the way, you wouldn't have those thoughts if you love the Lord you wouldn't have those thoughts unless you are born again. Okay? That, 
excuse me, that's an evidence that you are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You know, people that are in that middle ground, so many people try to scare them and that they're going to hell. You know? No. The purpose of the Gospel is to reassure you that God did choose you. If this, if this message resonates with you, then the Gospel is speaking to you. The Gospel is delivered in the Spirit. If it's speaking to you, that means you have the Spirit. Right? And that is an evidence that God chose you before the foundation of the world. An evidence that God wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And there's nothing in this life that can change that. And that gives such stability. Right? That gives stu- such stability during the challenging circumstances of this life. You know, um, maybe we've <laughs> maybe we've got over uh, some of the angst over the uh, 2020 presidential election and all that, you know, but uh, people say, are you, are you worried about the election, you know? Don't, don't waste an opportunity like that <laughs> to tell them about the real election, right? I mean, you're all, you're all getting nervous about, about, you know, everything that was happening surrounding that. You know what? I'm not concerned about, ultimately, what, you know computers got hacked and all this other stuff, whatever, whatever. I'm not concerned about what names are written in all of these these ledger books. What I'm concerned about is that my name is written in heaven by the grace of God. That gives you stability, doesn't it? It gives you hope. And it's a great, and I don't say that pridefully. You know, when I say the blessing of being chosen, I sure don't say it pridefully because only by the grace of God I hope I have the correct disposition to know that I'm Wretched sinner, I'm but God's. If I had nothing but my own works to claim when I stood before the Lord, my judgment would be is the exact same as all those that are cast in the lake of fire. Because I'm a wretched sinner, and just in case you haven't heard the gospel yet, you are too. <laughs> but by God's grace, He chose out of people. He loved the people. He wrote. Uh, their name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And it is a great blessing to be chosen. Right? It's a great blessing. And it's a great blessing to have the privilege of Him drawing us unto Him in the new birth and the privilege of serving Him here in the kingdom as well. May God richly bless you as my prayer. Amen. Very good to be here and see another good crowd, a good song service. So thankful mm-hmm. for your participation in the song service. And uh, as I said last night, um, it's always good to have good liberty in study. And it's also very encouraging when um, the prayers are somewhat of a preface for the message. <laughs> and um, I appreciate the prayer that was prayed. And... Um, I believe it hopefully will be very appropriate with what the Holy Spirit will hopefully bless us to consider. I ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And we'd like to consider together forgiveness. Forgiveness. And that's why it's so appropriate um, 
the prayer that was prayed to not be in the seat of the scornful, not to point at others, because anytime we point at others, as was said, we always have four fingers pointing back at us. You can stay there in Matthew chapter 18, but I'd like to read a couple verses for you to just be meditating on, on as we go through this. Um, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus gives another rendition of the uh, model prayer. We know the wording from the model prayer probably better from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, but he uses this wording in, in Luke chapter 11. When you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I believe that's an important distinction as we try to uh, consider, you know, we're just being honest together today, the challenge of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Because it's a debt. If it's a, if it's a real offense, and we want to deal with that too, sometimes it's not a real trespass, a real offense. Sometimes we're just a little too sensitive. Mm-hmm. And we just need to kind of get over that. Um, but, but if it's a real offense... If it's a real offense, that's a debt. That's a debt that in your mind, when you forgive someone, you have to make a choice for you to make that payment. You know, we want to hold the other person accountable and make them make the payment. It's a debt. They owe us. You know, they have a a debt that's supposed to be paid. And in our nature, we want to make them pay it. Forgiveness is saying, I'm choosing to pay that debt. Okay? So keep that verse in mind. And then also... Ephesians chapter 4, and in verse 32, Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So it might be very easy to look at different circumstances and look at an offense that someone might have towards you and say, well, they're not worthy of my forgiveness. And I will say, regardless of if they're contrite, if they've apologized, That's not relevant, really, in regards to your forgiveness. Most likely, they're not worthy of your forgiveness. Now, what does that have to do with anything? (laughs) You need to be reminded of the fact that you weren't worthy of Christ's forgiveness. Right? Why did God forgive you? It wasn't because you were worthy, right? We tried to think about that a little bit last night. It wasn't because God didn't choose you because you were worthy. Why did He forgive you? Praise God for Christ's sake. Amen? (laughs) He forgave you for Christ's sake. And uh, Jesus, at the end of this chapter here in Matthew 18, gives a a very dramatic parable uh, to to show us the severity of our unforgiveness toward others in light of the great debt that we have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. So, as we begin begin here in Matthew chapter 18, um, you'll notice in the 17th chapter, in the 24th verse, they uh, arrive at Peter's house in Capernaum. I always like to... Uh, set a uh, mental image and a context of this. So I want you to get the idea of uh, uh, Jesus and the uh, apostles here being in Peter's house uh, here in Capernaum. And then we have some people come in um, and are asking him throughout the rest of the uh, the 17th chapter, asking him about taxes and tribute, etc., etc. But then at the beginning of the 18th chapter, at the same time, okay, so in the same context, I want you to again get the picture, 
Uh, Jesus is uh, sitting here with the apostles in Peter's house in Capernaum. And at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> I tell you, you got to love these apostles, right? They're, they're uh, arguing, by the way, Jesus is you know going and saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to be resurrected the third day. And he's telling them all about this stuff. And they're arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. <laughs> and they're just like us, right? I'll tell you, they are, they are just as absent-minded, just as distracted as we are every day. You know, they, they, they're missing the, missing the ball. Uh, the Son of God's walking around with them, and they're worried about who's going to uh, be the greatest in the kingdom. He's want, they're wanting him to name a vice president. You know, who's going to be in charge? And now they finally, you know, it's interesting. Read this in, in Mark, I think. I think it's in Mark's account. Uh, they were having this little argument on the way on the way there, and then Jesus said, "Oh yeah, by the way, what?" And they get in the house, and by the way, what were y'all talking about? By the way, <laughs> nobody said a thing. It says there in, in Mark, they were a little embarrassed, a little embarrassed. But now, for some reason, they have some boldness. <laughs> you know, they're, again, they're just like us. Uh, when you first asked, they're a little bit embarrassed, but then finally. It just been eaten at somebody. I don't know who asked it, but it just been eaten at somebody. And then finally, they said, "Jesus, just settle this for us. <laughs> Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to be the most important of the apostles? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?" And then Jesus calls a little child unto him and sets him in the midst. You know, I think that's important. Yeah. That um, when Jesus came in the house, and it's, it's very interesting um, the way that the apostles. Um, kind of treated people when Jesus was going around. They felt like that uh, they were his bouncers to a degree. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to keep everybody away. Can't let anybody get, you know, within his bubble. You know, uh, we, we have to keep people at, at arm's distance. And um, and they were always trying to do that. And um, here, though. When Jesus is in the house, again, he's in Peter's, Peter's house. And um, when Jesus came in the house, at least at this time, the apostles didn't say, okay, all the little kids, you go out to the nursery, as it were. You know, you, y'all leave and you go play outside. You go do, do whatever. It's just beautiful to think about the fact that the Son of God is there in Peter's house and those little children are right there at his feet while he's teaching, right? Because he couldn't just pick up that little child if they weren't right there. It wasn't separated, right? It was, it was integrated. They were all there together. And what, what better place to be than uh, listening to the teaching of Jesus at the, at the feet of Jesus, right? Amen. But I believe it's beautiful here that uh, they ask him, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus just stoops down and he picks up one of these little bitty children that are playing at his feet. <laughs> one of these little bitty children. And he says, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. So... Here these apostles are having adult problems. <laughs> you know, they're, they're worried about who's better than the other one, who's going to have more authority, who's going to have more power, who's going to have uh, more influence. And isn't it interesting that children just aren't concerned about all of that, are they? 
They're very simple-minded. They're very uh, unpretentious. They uh, aren't trying to, you know, a child will be friends with anyone that's being that's willing to be a friend with them. <laughs> and the, the apostles are trying to one-up one another. And then Jesus, again, just picks up this little bitty child that's playing in his feet, and he says, this is your example. This is your example. Except you be converted, there was some change of mind that they needed to have. If they were going to uh, press in the kingdom the way they need to, they needed to get rid of some of that pride. They needed to be more humble. And he actually says that directly. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And um, if my mind continues to go in this direction, hopefully we might expound on some of that this afternoon. Uh, Jesus' multiple admonitions of, of becoming as little children and the necessity of having that mindset. It's great to see so many young people and children here today. And there's a reason why God um, doesn't separate those children away in, in worship because, you know, there's a lot of lessons that uh, us old folks need to learn from the young people, okay? And you want to know one of the principal examples of that? Forgiveness. That's where he's going to get around to. Forgiveness. What better example of forgiving 70 times 7, as Jesus is going to say later, forgiving perpetually than a little bitty child? Okay? And we're going to get to that. Now he goes on to say, um, if any of you offend one of these little ones, um, it was better for you the millstone were hanged about his neck. He says, if you know, if your eye causes you to sin, it's better for you to pluck it out than to enter into hellfire. If there's something that's causing you to sin, sometimes you have to take drastic steps to alleviate that problem. Because if you don't, if it goes unchecked, unaddressed. It's going to cause great sorrow, and it's going to cause great pain for you in the future. And it's interesting, the severity. You know, we know salvation is not by works. There's nothing we do in our life that can change that. So whether you uh, figuratively chop off your hand or pluck out your eye, that has no bearing on heaven or hell. But yet he says, if you don't do it, you're going to endure hellfire. That's interesting, right? Uh, That if you don't do it, you're going to be miserable here in this world. You know, Jonah... He was miserable down in the whale's belly. <laughs> he called it the belly of hell. And God's children, if we don't act properly, and we don't uh, exercise self-discipline, he says here, you can experience some hell fire here in this world, some misery and some sorrow if we don't um, have self-discipline, especially if there's an action that's causing us to sin and we don't deal with that properly. He goes on to say about some lost sheep Verses 11 to 14, that the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost, and uh, giving a different a different parable. The you know the uh, I think it's in Luke chapter 15. You know the lost coin and and then the lost sheep and then the lost son, right? The prodigal that goes away. Uh, it's great to think about the shepherd when the uh, when the sheep comes back. You know, he's not berating the sheep. No, he's thankful that the sheep has returned, same way the son, right? The father, he's looking for the son to return, and he didn't berate him. He didn't berate him. No, he, he welcomed him back, gave him his ring, fatty cap and all that. And what is the um, response that we should have when someone does repent, when someone does come back? 
It says, um, it doesn't say it here in this context. I, I guess it's in Luke. Uh, where it says there's more joy in heaven for the one sinner that repents. The 99 just souls that don't need repentance. So we need to get happy when people repent, right? <laughs> don't, don't beat them over the head when they come back. You know, we, uh, Maybe we'll make our way to the end uh, with the Corinthian church and where they dealt with, uh, first of all, an unrepentant person, and then he did repent. And he says, look, you don't keep hanging that over their head. No, they've already endured the punishment. They've already endured the sorrow. They've already endured the, the conviction. And when they come back, you don't keep beating them over the head for it. <laughs> no, we need to get just as happy as heaven does when people Amen. repent. Amen. And it says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents and nine-nine just souls who don't need repentance. If, if heaven gets happy about it, we ought to get happy about it in the kingdom of heaven, right? Amen. Okay? <clears throat> now, again... Make sure we have the context here. I don't, this is all, um, but I, I enjoy red letter Bible myself. It just fits my eye well. But if you have a red letter Bible, it's still all red letters, so it's still the same context. Okay, he's still speaking the same, speaking to the same people in the same setting. So as Jesus is sitting here in the in this uh, this house, in Peter's house, with the child on his lap, I want you to get that picture. He's he's giving this lesson right here with a child on his lap. And he says in verse 15, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he, and if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained a brother. And if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more than in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he neglect to hear them, then tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, then let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if uh, two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, first of all, we need to find out here in verse 15 that this is not necessarily talking about reconciling offenses with people out in the world. It says, moreover, if thy brother. Okay? If thy brother. Now, the principle, you know, these are good principles to apply in other areas. But this is primarily talking to how we deal with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Okay? Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. And that word trespass literally means to sin. To sin. Now, it says in other places in the New Testament, I don't think it, it's here in Matthew, but... Jesus essentially says it's inevitable that offenses are going to come. Okay? Forgiveness and offenses is a part of life. And it's a part of life in the church. Okay? Why? Because we're sinners. We make mistakes. You have a bad day. Right? You get hangry. <laughs> and you say things that you shouldn't say. You get frustrated. And, you know, even, even when you... Come to church, you know. Hopefully you've had enough time to, you know, detox from some of the challenges of the week. But sometimes you're just a little bit more prickly on Sunday than you are 
uh, on, on other Sundays. So it's inevitable. It's inevitable, especially verbally. I did a study of uh, Proverbs and trying to map out the topical aspects of Proverbs, you know, because it doesn't flow expositorily like a lot of things, so I try to map it out. And it's just amazing how much in Proverbs has to deal with speech. Mm-hmm. Speech. Um, and controlling our tongues. And uh, definitely, if you talk about offenses are inevitable, uh, verbal offenses are inevitable. They're inevitable in families. They're inevitable in the workplace. They're especially inevitable in the church. Okay? Now, I'm not going to name specifics when, when we talk about this because there's a lot of variability in this. Okay? And I'll just leave that between you and the Holy Spirit. Okay? But there's a lot of things, there's a lot of things that we get offended by that I don't believe fall into this category of being a full-scale trespass and sin. Okay? And I believe this is a very good pattern, first of all, to follow. Um, that, hey, you know, if you have a miscommunication with someone, if you're offended by something that someone said, the first thing you need to do, which is a great policy in life in general, is to just go talk to them about it. Okay? Um, and I believe you will find, if you find that as your natural disposition, the majority of the time, and I will say even maybe 80% of the time, a lot of the times it's just a miscommunication. Right? That's why you just got to talk about it, right? Uh, if you talk about it, you know, uh, and, and as we know, um, most of communication is nonverbal, right? What's the study? It's like 90% or something, which is really crazy to think about, by the way, considering we, nowadays we have so much communication through email and text message. I mean, that's why it's so difficult to, you know, misinterpret something, right? Uh, because we're, we have a very small sample size, and we've got a lot of room to project. <laughs> you know, you think about that. If, if that's right, you know, 90% is nonverbal and all that. So, that. so technically, you know, 10% is based on what we actually say. Well, if you're there in person, at least you've got 90, the other 90% to, like, work on. But then, if you don't, you've got a 90% vacuum <laughs> for you to create problems where there's not problems, right? Isn't that something? I just not thought about that right now. Ninety percent—it uh, gives you ninety percent of the room to misinterpret something, right? And many, many of the time, if we just talk about it, we'll realize, oh, wait a minute—that's not a trespass. That's not a problem. That's just me misinterpreting something. And then another thing is, if you go and you talk to them, you know, this is maybe a little bit out of character for you. Maybe you realize, oh, they are having a bad day. <laughs> so now. How can I help you with that, right? How can I minister to you in that, right? That's why we need to have good communication. That's why we need to have, you know, so so I think this is a good policy anyway, right? To just have good communication. If someone offends you verbally, a lot of times you can deal with just simple verbal offenses by talking it out, okay? But we're talking about real offenses right here, okay? We're talking about real trespasses. And I will say that if, if in your mind, if you are not willing to follow these patterns, if it is a, not a significant enough offense for you to bring other people into the situation, and if it's not a significant enough offense where you would bring it to the church, then you need to forgive them for Christ's sake and move on. Amen. And you can write that down. If you're taking notes, <laughs> if you're taking notes, you want the summary of the message. If it is not significant, because I mean, he said, look, there's not a 
there's not an off ramp for a better you know better way of putting it. You know, this is the pattern you go to. And if this is not significant enough for you to bring before the church, and if we can't get over this, I'm removing fellowship from you. If that, if you're not willing to go to that end result, you need to forgive them for Christ's sake and move on. Okay? But, if it is that significant of offense, okay, that trespass, it means sin, alright? And if it's that significant of an offense... Go talk to him individually, right? Or her, obviously. Go talk to that person individually, and if he will hear thee, in verse 15, thou hast gained a brother. Right. God's pattern worked, right? Um, you, you tell him honestly, hey, uh, or her, obviously, honestly, that um, this is the offense. I can't get over this offense right now, and how do we reconcile this? Hopefully. If the Holy Spirit of God says in verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them, it's great to be reminded of that in public worship. Mm -hmm. But if the Holy Spirit is dwelling with God's people and reconciling offenses and forgiving one another in that conflict kind of situation, how much more so is he going to dwell with us in public worship? Mm -hmm. But the immediate context here is in reconciling personal offenses, not public worship. Mm -hmm. Now, Praise God, if he's going to be with us in that struggling moment, how much more so when we're all in unity, right? Yeah. In, in public worship and in the church. But if you go to them with the right spirit and then they receive it with the right spirit, that's why, hey, if you're gathered, you know, it says if you're gathered in my name. Now, if you're going there with the wrong spirit to just tell them all, okay, things are just going to escalate. It's not going to get better. But if both of you really assemble there in the Lord's name, hopefully, if you do that, I would encourage you to pray with that person, okay, before and after. But if you're, you're sincerely gathering in the Lord's name, many times the Lord will hopefully, if they're truly in the wrong, they'll convict them. The Holy Spirit will convict them. And then, if you reconcile, and you tell one another you love one another, you hug it out, then you've gained a brother, mm -hmm. right? You've, you've ostracized that, um, uh, um, or prevented that offense. Um, but I know people in the church that, A, it wasn't even a trespass to this offense. It was something somebody said 20 years ago that they took wrong, and they got offended by it. And then they never went and talked to that person. And they've let it grow and grow and grow. And they have bitterness and a grudge for something that happened 20 years ago that they have never even talked to that other person about. But they tell other people about it. Okay? That's the reason I know about it. Um, okay, first of all, first of all, um, you should never, now, you know, you might have to talk about this with your spouse or something, but you should never talk to a third party before you talk to the person who directly offended That's you. Right. Never. Close quote, Holy Spirit. <laughs> right? That's not my opinion. That's what Jesus Christ just said. Okay? You don't go gossip. You don't go tell some third party about it. Now, there's a time to involve other people. But you don't go tell everybody about it. You go tell two or three people that you're going to take with you. Okay? But you don't ever... Ever go tell a third party 
before you've told that person directly and you try to reconcile with them directly. Okay? Now, if he won't hear you, you go with the right spirit. You pray about it. And they are just obstinate. And he won't hear you, then bring some witnesses. Okay? And that's why, hopefully, um, you can have some, some people that uh, have good mediatorial experience, you know, a pastor's a good person to have, deacons, other people uh, that maybe maybe you're in um, having to have a member of your church that's in some form of counseling or leadership position where they have to reconcile offenses, you know, there's a lot of good people to, to bring. But the main reason why two or three people are there um, is not to gang up on someone, it's really to have witnesses. Okay, so it's not he said, she said, he said, he said, whatever, whatever. It's not, you know, just two people bickering. Now there are witnesses to say, okay, this is the this is the problem, this is the offense. His response to this was this. There are third party witnesses to say, okay, this is the situation, and he is obstinate and he will not repent. Okay? Now, if you can't reconcile it there, then bring it before the church. Now, I would like to say here, again, this gives us a good pattern for a lot of things in life, but this is not principally saying this is how we deal with church discipline. Okay? It gives us a pattern for it, but this is not talking about church discipline. This is talking about interpersonal offenses. And I can just say, personally, I can't think of any time. Now, I don't know why I didn't get to this point. <laughs> it's possible that maybe, maybe people... Um, just decided I'm going to hold a grudge, and I can say, in many instances, that's the case. I'm just going to choose to hold a grudge instead of forgive them. But I can't think of any time, personally, my whole life in the church, where someone literally brought it before the church to say, I've had this personal offense with someone. Church, can you mediate this personal offense? Um, I can't think of any instance where it's truly been escalated to that level. Now, unfortunately, what happens before it gets to, you know, sometimes there'll be two or three people that'll, that'll get involved. And, and um, if you uh, can't reconcile it at that point, I'm just going to be honest with you. The majority of the time, the person's default is, okay, now I have the right to hold a grudge against them perpetually. And that's wrong. That's wrong. Okay? But I can't think of any instance um, where... I was involved in a church mediating a personal conflict. Okay? But that's the pattern. That's the pattern that God, God gave for us here. And if he neglect to hear them, tell it to the church, and if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and as a publican. And we know the way that publicans were viewed in uh, first century um, culture. Those were not people you wanted to be associated with. Um, they, there was a, a separation of fellowship. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't give you the right, again, to go gossiping to third parties about that and telling everybody about it. He is unto you. In your personal interactions with him, you also don't start making sides and saying, you know, I have this issue with him. If you're still friends with him and I'm not friends with you, he is unto you. Individually, you individually remove that degree of fellowship. Okay, you know I was thinking about this. Um, I think a good example of how we ought to deal with this circumstance is uh, 
is Abraham and Lot. Abraham and Lot, they were having some issues. They were having some strife. And Lot, he ends up going to going to Sodom. But I just, it's not there in the text. But, you know, I just tend to think that there was some things that Abraham was seeing about Lot prior to them separating that was giving him a little bit of concern. Uh, I think there was a reason why they were having strife, and it wasn't all about the cattle and all about the herdmen. I think he was starting to see some things about Lot. He made, there's a reason why he made the decision to go to Sodom. And he was enticed by the worldly things, so to say. So he was seeing, I think, some, some things there beforehand that were giving him a little bit of pause. And then finally, we're having strife, and he says, all right, you, we, we need to go our separate way. We need to separate to a degree, right? Now, when that happened, Lot, you know, he looked out there at Sodom and it looked great. looked like, uh, what's the language it uses over there? Almost like the Garden of Eden. I mean, it looked, it looked great, right? To the natural eye, uh, but past all that green lush grass was the wickedness of Sodom, right? Uh, but he chose to go that way and there was a separation of close fellowship, right? There was a separation of close fellowship. But then I think it's also commendable for Abraham when that happened, um, that when Lot got kidnapped, he went and rounded up his servant army and go went and um, and liberated him, right? So he didn't he didn't hold this this like vitriol. You know, I think some people read that. Let him be under these publican and a heathen. Well, that's my right to uh, hold this. Uh, grudge over their head and treat them bad. Well, how did Abraham treat Lot? He still loved him. He still loved him. You know, he went and rescued him when he was kidnapped. And then furthermore, you know, God shows up there on a flames of Mamre and he said, I'm going to go to Sodom. And then um, Abraham is pleading with him, you know, negotiating, will you save the city for... You know, 50, 40, 30. What they get down to? 10 people? You know, he's, he's negotiating with them. And I think to a large degree, uh, one of the main reasons why God saved Lot was not because of Lot. It was because of Abraham, honestly. Because Lot didn't want to leave. <laughs> he didn't want to leave. So I think that's a great example of, okay, we're having conflict. We're having an issue. We're going we're gonna to separate. We need to, we need to get some distance between us. I'm going to do my thing, you do your thing. But there's not a, there's not a hatred, there's not a vitriol. Uh, Abraham was still committed uh, to loving Lot and praying for him, beseeching the Lord to spare him in Sodom, and, and then even going out of his way to rescue him when, when he was kidnapped. Okay? <clears throat> Verse 19. Again, I say unto you that if uh, two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. <clears throat> and then where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And isn't that good to think about the fact that um, as we're going through this process, if we're approaching it in the right spirit, that Jesus Christ is right there with us. You know, because in all honesty, you know, do I have the ability to uh, make someone feel bad enough 
about if you got to this point, possibly, do, do I have the ability to just lay out this is the exact situation and this is my exact struggle with this situation? Just from laying all those facts out, is there a strong possibility that many people are going to say, if you've already got to this point, yes, I was wrong, I'm so sorry. A lot of times, if you got to this point, the, the trenches are dug in to a degree, okay? So how's that, how's that going to change? It's primarily going to change by the convicting spirit of God, right? That's why we have to approach that in Jesus' name. And again, there's just no place, there's no place in the church and in the kingdom for 20-year grudges that people, somebody, somebody didn't apply Matthew 18 somewhere around uh, along the road, okay? And part of it was, I know people again, that somebody said something 20 years ago, they never talked to them, and they still hold a grudge 20 years ago, even though they never did what Jesus said to do. Okay? That's just sin. And, I, and another thing, in my opinion, that's just pride. That's just pride. You're, you're elevating your feelings and your offense above God's Word. Okay? And we, we should know we can't trust our feelings 100%. Um, you know, sometimes we're a little bit too, I tried to kind of calibrate this, this statement I've made in the past, you know, you can't trust your heart. Don't follow your heart. Uh, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Yes, your natural heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But God guides you as a child of God. He guides you by, by your heart. You know, you just have to follow your heart as it follows scripture. Okay. But. Your feelings, you should know this if you're a disciple of Christ, your feelings are not your primary motiva- motivating factor because your Amen. feelings are wrong a lot. Amen. And there's a lot of things you're commanded to do whether you feel like it or not. <laughs> that's most of what, let's just be honest, that's most of what discipleship is. <laughs> it's doing what you know you're supposed to do when you don't feel like it. <laughs> so, to say that I had my feelings hurt 20 years ago and my feelings are so important that I'm going to hold this vitriolic grudge against somebody, that's saying your feelings are more important, especially if it's in the church, your feelings are more important than unity in the body of Christ. Yes. That's pride. That's pride. That's why he said, look at this little bitty child. <laughs> right? Be humble like this little bitty child. Uh, my, uh, my older brother... Is a 20 months older than me. Uh, his name's Jonathan. My name's David. And I guess my parents just wanted us to, you know, be have our souls knit with one another. And, you know, be best friends. I don't. We haven't had that discussion. I don't know if that's why they named me David. You know, but it just didn't work out. <laughs> it didn't work out that way. Um, and uh, me and Jonathan, we get along really good now. That we live in you know, different cities, and, uh, and you know, it just didn't work that good when we shared a room. It just didn't. It just didn't. Um, but as a whole, as a whole, children, us two, right, uh, you can be at each other's necks in the moment, but it doesn't last long. I mean, do you know of any, any kids that are saying, you know, 
somebody hurt my feelings a year ago. No, no, the, the way that boys work, you know, we fight and punch one another in the nose and we're good five minutes later. Right? Um, do, do kids hold grudges? No. Generally, no. Kids don't hold grudges. And it's just beautiful to think about the fact that Jesus is sitting here with this kid in his lap. And he's telling these grown adults, look at this little kid, look at this little child for the example of forgiveness. Right? Don't hold long-term grudges. Reconcile with them. Because I'll tell you that I think playing with their friend is more important than holding a grudge for kids. Right? So... Now, this is a later private conversation in Matthew 18. And um, after this account, Peter goes and asks him individually. And I I just, you know, I don't know the the background of this, but it sure seems like Peter was struggling with something for him to ask Jesus this right after what Jesus told him. So he goes to him privately. Now, He had been sitting with a child on his lap. Now this is a private conversation between Peter and Jesus. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. Now, till seven times, um, the common uh, Jewish idea, not the Jewish idea really, uh, the Pharisee idea, uh, was that for all practical purposes, four strikes and you're out. Uh, I'll have to forgive you three times, but on that fourth time, I have the right to hold it against you, which is a misapplication. This is the way the Pharisees did things. A misapplication of the book of Amos. Okay? Don't turn over here, but just listen to this. You know, He's describing multiple judgments on multiple different nations and all this stuff. And he uses this language many times here in the book of Amos. Uh, For three transgressions of Damascus... And for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And he tells multiple nations that. In other words, um, three three strikes, you're right on the border. But four, judgment's coming. So the, so the, uh, the Jews, for some reason, felt like that because God said that, <laughs> they felt like that because God said that, that I have the right <laughs> to uh, only forgive somebody three times. Uh, which is certainly incorrect, right? Uh, That's just the way the Pharisees operated, right? They they were always trying to create bondage and legalism and all these laws. And for some reason, they thought, since God said that, we have the right uh, to hold people accountable in a very unforgiving way when they reach four offenses. So I think that's important to understand with what Peter is used to being a Jew is that he's actually being very charitable. He's being very charitable to say, I'm willing to forgive somebody seven times. Very charitable. But then Jesus says, I say unto thee, uh, not until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Now, that, he obviously doesn't mean literally 490, and then 491, you know, you've got the right to go get them. You know, if you, you got a bigger problem if you're counting 490 offenses <laughs> waiting to get to 491. I mean, you've missed the boat if you're counting 490 offenses. But what Jesus is saying here is that you should forgive perpetually. Right. Okay? Now, what does this all boil back to? 
that God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Okay? And that's the parable that he gives us here to teach that lesson. He begins here in verse 23. Notice, therefore is the kingdom of heaven. So we're still talking about the church, right? We're still talking about the kingdom. We're talking about brothers. You know, even Peter's question. How else shall my brother offend me? Right? We're talking about brothers and sisters. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about the church. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay... His Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And the servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. You know, it's interesting. He's not even asking for forgiveness here. He's just asking for an extension. You know, just, just give me time. Give me time. I'll pay it all. And the Lord of that servant, this is important, was moved with compassion, with love, right? He was moved with compassion. And he loosed him and forgave him the debt. I mean, 10,000 talents. I mean, currency rates, they change all the time. But just to give you a little bit of an idea, a little bit of a framework and perspective, um, 10,000 talents could easily be rendered about $15 million. Okay? And then he's going to end up not forgiving somebody for 100 pence, which is the equivalent of $15. I want you to put those two in perspective. All right? How do you think that you would be feeling you know, if you've ever been in financial debt, it's a great weight on you physically, right? I mean, that causes a lot of stress. It causes a lot of strain. And could you imagine just in a natural sense how you would physically feel if someone said, not just that I'm forgiving your mortgage, a couple hundred thousand dollars or something, but I'm forgiving you a $15 million, 10,000 talent debt. How do you think you would feel? I hope that I would be excited and that I would be joyful and the last thing I would ever do <laughs> in the aftermath of being forgiven that debt, hopefully, the last thing I would ever do is go somebody, go find somebody that owed me a couple dollars, Right? And then say, I am going to exact on you the same vengeance that I had coming on me before my Lord forgave me. So what, what would your reaction be if someone gave you, forgave you this magnitude of debt? I hope it would be joy and forgiveness toward others, right? It should give you a greater perspective. It should give you a greater joy. And what was this man's response, unfortunately, the servant's response? The servant went out. And it almost sounds like the... This was pretty quick, soon after. It may not have been immediately, but I mean, it seems like it was pretty soon after. And for him to be so, um, I guess, just obtuse to, to the magnitude of what he had been forgiven, and then immediate first thing on his mind, <laughs> again, uh, you know, you can think about this yourself, but, but the first thing on his mind after he's been forgiven that debt, instead of just going home and celebrating, the first thing on his mind is, man, I remember that somebody didn't give me 20 bucks a couple years ago. <laughs> I mean, come on, right? That's ridiculous. For that to be the first thing in your mind. 
that someone owes you an inconsequential amount right after you've been forgiven this magnitude of debt, right? But he goes and he finds one of his fellow servants who had owed him a hundred pence, just, just a couple bucks, just a couple dollars. And he laid, notice how violent he's being here. He laid hands on him, took him by the throat, and said, pay me all that thou owest. And his fellow servant says the, this is interesting, says the exact same thing to him that he said to the Lord. Have patience with me, and I will pay thee. I'm not even asking you to forgive me. I'll, I'll pay you what you owe me. Just give me some time. That's the exact same thing that he had just said to the Lord. And what was his response? He would not but went and cast him into prison until he should pay the debt, which to me doesn't make any sense. Right? I mean, if he wants your money back, um, I'm not going to throw somebody in prison. You know? You can't work in prison. <laughs> I want my money back. Um, go work it off. Right? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, I think what we find right there is it must not really be about the money. Right? If he wanted the money back, he wouldn't throw him in prison. It's not really about the money. It's about him exacting personal vengeance. It's really what it boils down to. Right? He's wanting to make himself feel better by punishing someone else. We said earlier that forgiveness is a debt. You know, if somebody owes you something, you know, it's a sacrifice it's an injury to you to a degree for you to say, I'm going to be the one that pays that debt. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. Forgiveness is not easy. Okay? But here's what we have to be reminded of when we're called with the challenging task of forgiving others who have legitimately trespassed and sinned against us. You have to look to the cross. You have to see the magnitude of the 10,000 talent times a billion debt that you have against Jesus Christ. And He didn't forgive you because you were repentant. He didn't forgive you because you were groveling at His feet saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. He didn't forgive you because you were contrite. Why did He forgive you? Solely for Christ's sake. Solely for Christ's sake. So therefore, how can we forgive someone that has offended us? How can I choose in my ledger book to pay that debt instead of in my own mind? Hopefully you don't do it externally by gossiping and slander and running them down. But even in my own mind, I'm going to throw them in prison and torture them in my mind by holding a grudge. Okay? How do you pay that debt? How do you pay the debt? You need to be reminded of the great debt that you have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? That's what this parable is teaching, just in case you haven't figured it out yet. That is the 10,000 talent debt. You're the 10,000 talent debt debtor. And you were forgiven solely by the compassion of Jesus Christ, by the love of God. And how dare we dishonor the blood of Jesus Christ by going out and saying that someone else's offense, if he was willing to forgive me for Christ's sake, what I'm saying when I refuse to forgive someone is that my offense, their offense toward me, is greater 
than my offense toward God that God forgave me of. And that's dishonoring the Lord. That's dishonoring the blood of Jesus Christ to say that my offense is greater than what Christ paid for. That's why you have to look to the cross. Because most likely that person's not going to be worthy of your forgiveness. But you want to know why this person was forgiven? You want to know why you were forgiven? Compassion. And what did this man not have? Compassion. Okay? Now, a word got out about this. And it was the other servants. The other servants knew that this was unfair. I mean, this guy was forgiven this huge debt, and now he's throwing this other guy in prison. And they went and they told the guy, the Lord that forgave him. Because they knew that was wrong. Even in the just the general disposition of the community, they knew it was wrong for that to happen. So they go and they tell him what, what happened. And he said, Oh, thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all the debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not... Thou also have had compassion. You should have shown the same love to him that I showed to you, right? <clears throat> you should have had compassion on my fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee. And as his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him, so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you if you forgive your if you uh, from your hearts forgive not every one your brother that trespasses against you. Now, obviously. This doesn't have anything to do with God sending people to hell. That can't be the context of it, right? But if you choose to not forgive someone and hold this debt against you, he says, you know, how do we pray? Do you have enough boldness to pray the model prayer, right, by the way? (laughs) Do you have enough boldness to pray the, the model prayer that forgive my debts as I forgive others? You have no boldness to pray that prayer right? <laughs> well, if you pray that prayer right and God's holds you accountable to your words and you're unforgiving toward others, he said, I'm going to exact some torment on you. There's going to be some severe conviction. There's going to be a lot of, of uh, internal tor- turmoil that you're going to have in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, this is a parable of the kingdom of heaven. You're going to have a lot of internal turmoil in the kingdom of heaven and God says, here, I'm delivering you to the tormentors. And see, that's why, you understand, right? <laughs> that if, if someone has offended you and they refuse to repent and then you hold that grudge against them, they've already self-justified themselves in their mind. Are you hurting them in any way by holding this against them? No, that they at this point, they've already convinced themselves they haven't done anything wrong. They've self-justified themselves. Who's the only person you're hurting? Who's the only person you're hurting by not forgiving them or holding a grudge? You're delivering your own self into torment. The only person you're hurting is yourself. The only person. Okay? Let's conclude in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul had to speak very harshly and very directly to the church at Corinth, especially in his first letter. And one of the real problems that they had was that they had a man having a very inappropriate, sinful relationship that they had not dealt with. And furthermore, they were bragging about their own charity by not dealing with it. So not only did they not deal with it, they were prideful about the fact of how loving and charitable we're being. Now, we need to be loving and charitable. But the integrity and the health of the overall body is more important. 
That's what he goes on to say. Look, a little leaven leaven at the whole lot. I mean, there's sometimes you have to do things that are very uncomfortable to protect the, the health of the entire body. And in that circumstance, he said, look, you've got to deal with this because if you don't, it's going to hurt the whole church. It's going to hurt the whole body. All right? And then, thankfully, they received it in the right way and they dealt with it. And then he responded in the right way. And he repented. And he's addressing this now as a follow-up in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. <clears throat> Verse 6. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. Actually, let's read verse 5 first. But if any man have caused grief, he hath grieved, uh, he hath not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment who is inflicted of many. So that contrawise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I may that I might know the proof of you whether you be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, he says, look, this man has repented, but you haven't forgiven him. Okay? You're still trying to hold it over his head. He says, look, why are you going to, uh, sufficient to such a man is the punishment thereof, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the shame of everyone else, he has endured his punishment. He has endured his sorrow. And now, now that he's forgiven, how should you receive him back? The same way that heaven received him, right? Like we mentioned earlier. There should be more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. That's how the kingdom of heaven should respond, right? In the church. So he says, look, you were responding improperly on the front end by being haughty about allowing it. Now you're responding improperly on the back end by not properly forgiving him and bringing him back in love now that he has repented. Okay? He says, look, confirm in verse 8, confirm your love toward him. Aren't you glad, you know, it says our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Aren't you glad that God didn't forgive you, but then every time he sees you, he brings back up what you, what you did. Right? <laughs> Well, are you glad that God didn't treat you that way? I'm very glad God didn't treat me that way. <laughs> then why would we treat other people that way, right? Why would I bring up past defenses all the time? Now, now I, I don't want to speak too blindly here. When someone breaches trust and they do things that compromise that trust, that doesn't mean that you totally whitewash it. And you go back to exactly the way things were. No, there's a process. There's a process of building that trust back up. So I don't, I'm not talking about us just being blind, okay? That's right. But there's a difference between forgiving and then treating them differently because of that forgiveness, okay? Um, so I'm not, I'm not simply saying you need to ignore past offenses. No, no. People's actions dictate fellowship. Okay, And we need to judge that accordingly. But then Paul says here, you need to forgive him. 
You need to show love to him. And notice this language in verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I, I think one of the uh, most successful devices um, that Satan has in his artillery is leading us to unforgiveness. That's what he's talking about there in context, right? What's his device? Unforgiveness. And what does unforgiveness and these grudges cause? Fractures and disrupting the unity of the church. Right? We're talking about the church. He's saying, look, that person forgives and you you haven't brought him back as welcome, uh, as lovingly as you should have. It's causing fractures and disunity in the church. And when we allow those to fester, we are giving Satan an advantage. And Satan doesn't need any advantages. I mean, he's already... um, He's a hard worker. I'll tell you, he's efficient. Um, He is out to deceive the saints all of the time. And we don't need to give him any leg up. (laughs) We don't need to give him anything to work with. We don't need to give him an advantage, but unforgiveness is one of Satan's most effective devices. It's one of his most effective devices. But isn't it good, though, right? It says a little bit later on in... Uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians, a little bit later on, that the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but mighty through God, right? So isn't it good that what we have in our arsenal, what we have in our artillery, is more powerful than the devices of Satan and the temptations of Satan, right? And and what and in this context, what what is the uh, powerful army that we have? You know, what's, what's the... What's the, uh, what's the um, uh, military object that we, that we have. It's, it's forgiveness, right? It's forgiving others as Christ has forgiven us. Amen. And, you know, I'm, I'm still very young and still very green, but, but I, I have seen a lot of fractures and disunity in the church over long-term grudges and unforgiveness just simply because, I don't know if you haven't been taught, I don't know if you just are not obeying the Word of God, but there is no circumstance, there is no circumstance that you should ever have a 20-year grudge, ever. (laughs) Ever. Not if you're going to that person directly. Not if you're praying for the intervention of the Holy Spirit, reconciling with other people. There's no scenario that that issue could could grow that long, and you don't know the only person you're damaging by allowing it to, to uh, fester that long, the only person you're hurting is you. God didn't want you to be injured that way. God gave us the pattern, right? He gave us the pattern. And, and Lord forbid we ever disrupt the unity of the church by us saying, my feelings are more important than the unity of the church. My i got to make sure that my debt is paid. i got to make sure my offense is paid. Instead, we look at the cross, we look at our 10,000 talent debt that we've been forgiven in Jesus Christ, and we forgive them for Christ's sake. We forgive them for Christ's sake. And it's easy to preach, 
on a Saturday morning. Right? <laughs> it's easy to preach, but it's hard to do. It's hard to do. I mean, it's hard to pay that debt. Yeah, I'm an accountant, and I don't like writing off debt. <laughs> I, I don't like somebody not paying me what they owe me. Uh, it's hard to do. It's hard to do to write off that debt. But we have to be reminded of the debt that we have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. And I certainly hope and pray that God can give us the grace um, to not give Satan an advantage. Not, not be ignorant. You know, the last thing you can do in a warfare, we're in a warfare. We're in a spiritual warfare. And the last thing that you can do is to be naive and ignorant in the middle of a war. You need to be knowledgeable about what's going on. You need to be knowledgeable about the devices of the enemy. And God's given us that knowledge. Let's forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. And God bless you. The Lord has thoroughly blessed us again this morning. Torn between songs, Jesus paid it all, but I'm going to go with number 42. It's the Lord in thy presence, and I know we've just met. I'm going to read it to you, just want you all to chew on it, and then we'll sing it. It says, Lord in thy presence, here we meet. May we be found in thee. Oh, make the place divinely sweet, and let thy grace abound. With harmony, thy servants bless, that we may own to thee. Oh, how good. How sweet, how pleasant tis when brethren all agree. May Zion's good be kept in view and bless our feeble aim, that all we undertake to do may glorify thy name. This song can be sung at the start of a public worship service. It can be sung before a conference service. It can be sung before you go and have that reconciliation with your brother. This can be that prayer. I invite you to stand and sing number 42, Lord in thy presence. Lord in thy presence, hear me. Just know you have an open invitation. 
Um, and we're really, really looking forward to that. Um, it'll be our first meeting in this this new date, the second weekend of November, and we'll be having communion that Sunday. And very excited for that, and a good good taste of this weekend, and gets me excited for next weekend too. So uh, just know that you have an invitation to that if you want to drive our way. Um, actually, it's interesting. Um, Highway 82 kind of. Um, Highway 82, so it's pretty easy to get there, actually. <laughs> get on 82, go west, and you'll eventually arrive uh, in Starville and then, then Ackerman. But, um, but we, we've had a very blessed time and very thankful for the opportunity and chance to be here. Um, you can turn to Mark chapter 9 um, by uh, way of a different note. Um, you know, people have asked a lot of times, you know, who are the very elect? possible to see the very elect and I tend to think it's the Saturday afternoon crowd right <laughs> in, in the annual meeting so I'm glad to be preaching to the very elect <laughs> this, this afternoon uh, but I will try to be expedient um, and uh, hope the Lord will bless our consideration of, of these scriptures it's actually um Um, actually, the same circumstance, the same account that we looked at from Matthew chapter 18. And um, I want to look just briefly, highlight a couple instances um, of Jesus using uh, children as uh, the example for quite a few different things. And um, but there's a reason why God set up <clears throat> his worship in the manner that he did in his church for um, one of the main reasons is uh, it's Titus chapter 2 I believe where it says that um, the uh, if you're a little bit older the Bible calls you aged you know, not, <laughs> old, not old but if you happen to be aged uh, the, the aged men and women uh, that you're commanded to instruct the, the younger men and women. Well, you're not going to do that if you're in separate rooms and you're in, you know, separate, you know, Bible studies or Sunday school. Or, you know, if you're segregated, you can't do that. And there's a lot of value and wisdom, right, that the young people can glean from the older, more seasoned, um, aged people, right? Um, but also, we need to see the other end of the spectrum, which is that there's a lot that the more seasoned people can learn from the children, from the simplicity of the child's mind, and and you know just the way that you know they don't, a lot of children don't overthink things the way that we do. So it's good to have conversations with children sometimes uh, because they can just literally just cut to the heart of the matter. Right? <laughs> Y'all know kids are brutally honest, for better or for worse, right? Um, but, but I say all that to say that God set up his church in that way so that the younger people, they can glean from the older people, from the aged people, but then also the other way around too. So we don't, don't need to miss the other half of that. So um, here in Mark chapter 9, again, the same account of them going to Peter's house and picking up the child, and he goes on, as we considered in Matthew 18, he goes on to expound a little bit more about forgiveness. Um <clears throat> 
So he says here in Mark's account, and I referenced this earlier <laughs> that we all kind of laugh together about. Mark chapter 9 and verse 33, they came to Capernaum. Jesus knew pretty well uh, what they were arguing about, what they were disputing about, but they held their peace, right? They didn't want to tell him <laughs> that they were arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And then he came and sat down and he called the twelve. Any man desire to be the first, uh, the, the same shall be last of all and the servant of all. And again, he gives this, this picture lesson. I love the way that Jesus teaches um, you know, um, such as like the parable of the sower or something, I can just envision him walking by. It may not have been the case, you know. I think he taught these things probably multiple times, but I can just envision Jesus walking by a field, right? Walking by a field, and then him saying, "A sower went out." John chapter uh, 14 to 16 and that final sermon that, that he was giving them and then at the end of John 14 it says they arose and they went out and then I just kind of tend to think again it's not there in the text but they left the upper room at that moment they're like in transit they're walking and then all of a sudden he starts talking about the true vine the true vine and I just kind of tend to think that he was walking by a vine walking by a vineyard because that's how Jesus taught didn't he he pointed at things, right? He used the things that were around them. You know, they they pick up a, a net, a, a fish in a net. So he taught them about fish in a net, right? And that's how he talked. That's how he taught. Um, so he does the same thing. If he's going to get children as the example, what does he do? He picks up a child, right? He shall receive one of such children in my name. Receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me, um, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. So when you receive that little child, when you minister to that little child, you're ministering to Jesus Christ. Now John, the Apostle John here, um, says in response to this, again, you'd think he'd maybe be a little bit more reflective, a little bit more solemn, but what does, what does John say in the aftermath of that? He says, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him because he followeth not us. Now remember, John's one of the sons of thunder, right? He for us or you're against us. You know? And Jesus said things like that sometimes too. I mean, he it's light and darkness, you know. Uh, very, very clear cut uh, message that Jesus delivered sometimes. And then John says, unfortunately, I think maybe here in a little bit of a braggardly way, uh, he says, aren't you proud of us, Jesus, for telling these guys off because they didn't follow us? You know, he's kind of bragging about it. He's like, Master, you know, yes, they're casting out devils in your name, but they weren't following us, so I chewed them out. Aren't you proud of me? <laughs> aren't you proud of me that I did that? And now remember, remember, John says this, while Jesus has the little bitty child in his lap, right? <laughs> now, that kind of line in the sand, you know, that kind of for us or against us, I don't really think you see that very prevalently in children. They're, they're, they're very welcoming, right? Jesus goes on to say here to John, Forbid him not, for there is no man 
uh, which shall do a miracle in my name that can speak, uh, that can lightly speak evil of me. is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. So Jesus kind of gives the opposite perspective. He said, you, you think that if you're not right here lockstep with me, if you're not doing exactly what I'm doing, if you're not replicating exactly what I'm doing, then you're against us and I'm going to draw that dividing line and I'm going to cast you out and you don't have anything to do with the Lord. He says, no, you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. Not that you have to agree 100% with me, and if you don't, then you're a false professor, you're a blah, 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 you know, whatever you want to do, insert right there. Instead, his perspective is, if you're not against us, you're for our part. In other words, the dividing line in the first century Jews, boy, it was pretty clear, wasn't it? Those Pharisees and the people that hated Jesus, they wanted to kill him. Like, it was, it was a very stark line. But these are not men that were wanting to slay Jesus. They were casting out devils in their name. Now, they didn't have some knowledge that they needed. They didn't have some zeal that they needed, apparently. But he says, look. That they're against us. They're not against us. Okay? Now, think about a little bit of child. They're so welcoming, and they're, they're willing to play with anybody, you know, um, I'm sure I'm thankful to have as many young people and kids as we have had in the congregation this weekend. Um, but I think about my little nephew, Isaac. He turned seven this week, and he finds a and many kids are like this, but he, he finds a kid to play with everywhere he goes, everywhere he goes. You know, and, uh, and many kids are like that because they just have an entirely different perspective than us adults get when we get jaded a little bit. You know, we talked about forgiveness this morning. When you get burned a little bit, when when you have some some friendships that dissolve, when you when you have some challenges that that um, start having adult problems, you know, have to think through some things. Sometimes you get a little bit jaded, and you're not as welcoming as you should be. Maybe not as forgiving as you should be. And I think this is one aspect in which we need to take on that mindset of humbleness, the humility of that little bitty child, and be, be welcoming and loving to those who may be a little bit different than us, you know? They may do things a little bit different than us. The body of Christ has diversity in the body of Christ, right? And diversity is necessary <clears throat> because if you don't have diversity, it's not a body, Right? It takes a multitude of different members and the diversity of the body to make a body. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of hands laying around. You know, that's just weird. So, that's not a body. That's not a body. You see, diversity makes the body, but the diversity has to work together. You know? And I've also learned that there's diversity, again, the individual members of the body of Christ, particularly local assembly, but I've also learned there's a lot of diversity among churches, too. There's a different personalities of churches, just like there's different personalities of members in an individual local assembly. Uh, some people do things a little bit differently. Some churches do things a little bit differently. But guess what? We're all a part of the overall global body of Christ. And diversity's not bad. Diversity's not bad. 
when there's unity, when there's unity. So the little bitty child mindset says, um, I'm willing to welcome anybody who's not against me. <laughs> and I think that that's a very good perspective for us to have. Now let's shift to a, um, actually before we move on, um, he gives some very detailed language um, about offending some of these little ones. And certainly we think about these little bitty children. Um, you know, I, I think about a member, unfortunately, at, at my church. Thankfully, she's came back. It took her 30 years to come back. But, but I mean, this is not a five or six year old. This is a teenager. And there was the minister at, uh, at the church when she requested for baptism, being a 13, 14 year old, she was told she was too young to be baptized. And I, I say this with all of the forgiveness and humility and love in my heart. I would love to punch that minister in the nose <laughs> for, for wasting 30 years of such a great member that she has been from such an unscriptural mindset. Yeah. Um, and it says, whosoever shall offend one of these little ones. You know, I don't want to do anything that is going to hinder a little bitty child that's been born again, that loves the Lord, that is seeking the Lord. I don't want to do anything that will be a stumbling block to anybody, but especially those little bitty children into pressing into the kingdom. Okay? But I don't believe this is solely speaking of everyone under a certain age. I think it's primarily speaking of babes in Christ. I mean, someone could be a 60-year-old person and be a babe in Christ. And, and they're more sensitive and they're more not as mature enough to be able to work through things. And once you have, you know, describes people um, as being strong in faith and you need to help those that are a little bit weaker, that, that haven't had the maturity yet to be able to reason through things. Uh, well, over time, you build some of that maturity. Over time, you, you learn how to display wisdom in different circumstances. Um, but... We need to have um, a real consciousness, I think, of bringing up children in the church, in our families, certainly, raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as pastors, trying to instruct these young, young children. You know, he told um, Peter to, the first thing he told him in those three admonitions was to feed the lambs first, mm-hmm. right? Feed the lambs and feed the sheep and feed the sheep. So we don't need to be talking about, you know, all of these high-level doctrinal things all the time. we got to get it down where where the lambs can feed. Mm -hmm. But I want you to understand that there could be a lamb in Christ, a babe in Christ, that could be 60, 65 years old. Okay? So we don't want to offend the little children in age, no doubt, right? But we also don't want to do anything that is a hindrance to those that are young in their spiritual walk, those that are young in spiritual maturity, the babes in Christ, for them to grow, right? We want to feed them, feed the lambs, and to feed the sheep. And then he just gives a very severe, I mean, really sobering warning if we offend one of these little ones. And this is just Jesus' words for you, okay? Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it's better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. If thy hand offend thee and cut it off, it's better for thee to enter into life maimed uh, than two hands and go into hell. 
uh, into the fire that shall never be quenched, for there the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. He describes the same thing of the foot and the eye, etc., etc. And he's he's saying there that if there's something that's that's uh, causing you to sin, but also particularly in context, if there's something that is causing you to offend these little ones, then you need to take severe, drastic, appropriate action Mm -hmm. to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And he's speaking figuratively of even if it's necessary, plucking out your own eye. Now, that's figurative. You know, cutting off your own hand when I'm talking about Sharia law or anything like that. But that hurts, Mm-hmm. Right, he, he he's describing the severity of what is necessary, something that is uncomfortable, something that's going to cause pain, uh, something that's going to maybe even be a hindrance to you going forward. You know, you cut off your hand. Well, I don't have that hand going forward. But it's better for you to be slightly inconvenienced in the long run than for you to be a detriment to the spiritual growth and maturity of these little bitty babes in Christ. Mm-hmm. And and the severity of the judgment for not doing that, he describes it to hell. He describes it to hell. And um, he describes uh, the unforgiveness as being in torment, right? That, that tells you how seriously God takes the, the care and protection of these, these little children. So um, let's go to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. In verse 15. And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. You know, they, again, I think they just had this... uh, bouncer mentality and they're just you know we're our we're his bodyguards and you know nobody can touch him and and i mean i I get it i mean honestly most of the time they were they had multitudes following them you had these pharisees that were trying to kill him hey if i was in charge of security for jesus you know (laughs) i'd be concerned that there was some trojan horse pharisee in the middle of that too i mean but they got they got really paranoid about that uh, by the way, as a side note, I don't know if any of you have watched the, the television show or the streaming app, whatever, however it's being uh, produced now, The Chosen. Um, I, I think it's a very good representation of Jesus and his apostles. As with anything, eat the chicken, throw away the bones. Um, but I believe, from my perspective, it's about the most authentic um, presentation of Jesus and his disciples. Most of the time, I'm totally against that stuff. Um, but I think it's it's a very beneficial thing if you're if you're interested in that they have an app and you can check all that out. But I, but I like how they have made Peter's character in that Peter is kind of like head of security uh, for Jesus, and he's always concerned about the Romans. You know, he's always concerned about everybody getting too close. And I kind of think that's probably an accurate characterization of Peter to a degree. Peter and John. You know they're the uh, they're the enforcers, and we can't let anybody get too close. But then they don't have enough balance when they're bringing these little bitty children to Jesus. They say, "No, no, no, babies aren't allowed here." Right? Uh, they, they got a little distracted. They got a little distracted. And uh, I mean, could you imagine those moms, uh, those those mothers? I mean, 
if I believe that this is God manifest in the flesh, right? And if I believe this is the Son of God, I want to take my little bitty baby to him. And it says here, bless him. It says in another of the gospel accounts that he prayed for them. I mean, I, I would love to have Jesus Christ be able to lay his hands on my little bitty baby and pray for him. <laughs> uh, and, and that was their desire. And then they get up there and the apostles rebuked them. You're not just like, oh, no. We have a schedule. We don't. We don't have time. No, we're running a little bit late. They rebuked them, <laughs> a little bit harsh with them. And then Jesus says, He called unto them, "Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God." Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Now I want you to notice where this is sandwiched in right here. Um, Jesus had just finished delivering a parable that we know very well, verses 9 to 14, about the Pharisee and the publican. Okay? And the reason he delivered that, in verse 9, there were certain that trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Despised others. So the Pharisee is very self-righteous, he's very haughty, but he also looks across the courtyard of the temple and he sees the publican and he says, I'm so glad that I'm not like that guy. I'm so glad I'm not like the, the publican. It's one thing to be self-righteous, but it's another thing to puff yourself up to such a degree and then tear down the other people around you, too, especially when he's the one who's actually being righteous, smiting, uh, smoting on his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner, right? But you see the self-righteousness and the pride that that Pharisee is exhibiting. And then right after that is when Jesus says, suffer the little children to come unto me, right? Jesus said in that earlier account that you need to be, unless you humble yourself as a little child. So a child is described as being humble, right? Would you... Agree with that? That most children don't have um, as high of a view of themselves as we do when we get to adulthood. <laughs> you know, pride's more of a learned trait. Now, now I understand, you know, they're still sinners. So y'all are still sinners, you know. Um, and all that's in the world is the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, you know. I know y'all are pride too, you know, in your nature. But, but at the same time, I think as, as a whole... Children aren't generally as prideful and as judgmental of others as adults are. Do you agree with that? And I think he's using him them again here as an object lesson to say this is a bad example of pride, of self-justification, of um, despising others because you think that you're better than them. Look at this little bitty child. Look at the humble mindset of this a little bitty child. Um, there's quite a few things that we could mention in relation to this, but this was a, um, one word that kept coming to mind as I was thinking about this. Uh, children being unpretentious. And pretentious, the um, root word of that would be pretend. To portray something that's inaccurate, right? Unpretentious or pleasantly simple 
not attempting to impress others by pretending to be something else. You know, children are, they are who they are, <laughs> right? They're not trying to put on a show for anybody. Uh, the Pharisee, you know, he wanted to pray and give alms in the streets where everybody would see him. So everyone would heap praise on him. You don't see too many children trying to do that kind of stuff, right? Because they're unpretentious. Now, unpretentious means the opposite of this. So pretentious means attempting to impress by affecting or portraying greater importance than is act- actually possessed. Mm-hmm. So unpretentious is the opposite of that, <laughs> right? It's not trying to portray yourself as better than someone else. And children are typically very authentic. As you know, they are brutally honest. (laughs) Uh, There is many times not a filter uh, about the honesty and the the setting. They don't don't have as much social awareness. (laughs) There's a place for honesty, you know, uh, but there's also maybe times that let's not be honest, brutally honest in this moment, right, <laughs> with these people around. Uh, but there's a, a simplicity, I guess, a simplicity of the mind of a child that I think is to be emulated. Okay, so now, right after this, okay, so before it, you have the pride and the self-justification of, of the Pharisee, and then right after this, you have the rich young ruler, okay? So he says, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. And he uses the language earlier, that unless you become as a little child, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that was the rich young ruler's problem. Is he, he was having some hindrances of him entering into the kingdom of heaven. And we're told in Mark's account that God loved this man. So if God loved him, he's a child of God. Okay? However, he had some adult problems that were preventing him from being converted and entering into the kingdom. And what were those adult problems? For him, it was his wealth. Now, some of you may not have that problem. (laughs) But um, it says of this man, you know, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? Well, there's nothing you can do to gain an inheritance. You have to be chosen by someone else to be, in, to be an heir. Um, so he asked the wrong question. We can't do anything to gain eternal life. And Jesus uh, begins to just tear him down rung by rung. You know, uh, obey the law. Well, of course I've obeyed the law. Of course I've obeyed the Ten Commandments. I've done all that from my youth. And, well, he thought that he had. The, the last commandment is the one that he was struggling with, which is, thou shalt not covet. Mm-hmm. I don't think he realized that. He didn't realize that he was struggling with covetousness. Um, but then he gave the summary statement that I think um, could be made, statement could be made of all of us as well. He said, one thing thou lackest. One thing thou lackest. There's always something. <clears throat> There's always something in each of our lives, and maybe more than one thing for you, you know. But at a minimum, there's always something that is hindering us from full-hearted discipleship. And for him, for him, it was his prosperity. It was his wealth. He was rich, his riches. And this man who Jesus loved, 
who he had been called upon to follow Jesus because he couldn't have that childlike mindset to not worry about that. He wasn't willing to let go of his riches, and he went away sorrowful. You know, it says in First um, Timothy chapter 6 that love of the minds of all evil, and some have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That rich young ruler, isn't it sad to think about someone? Um, you know, someone is physically choosing to hurt themselves. That is an indication of a confused mindset. Okay? So, in a spiritual sense, if someone is choosing to pierce themselves through with many sorrows, that's a very bad indication of the spiritual state of that person. And what's so sad about it? is they're doing it to themselves, mm-hmm. right? They're doing it to themselves. They're piercing themselves through with many sorrows. And it's as if that rich young ruler had the opportunity to give that up, to, to, to liberate himself of, of the bondage of that. And instead, he chose to go home sorrowful and to pierce himself through with many Because for him, the love of money was the root of all evil for him. You know, it wasn't wealth. It wasn't the amount of money in the bank. It wasn't the amount of assets. It was the love of money. It was the covetousness Mm -hmm. of that money. And he went away sorrowful. He went away sorrowful. Now, do you think that children are too concerned in the big scheme of things with accumulating wealth as opposed to fellowship? I, I say... Um, if you offer a child, a young child, you know, I can give you, because money just doesn't mean as much to them. They don't have as much um, frame of reference, I guess. And if you offer them, you know, $1,000, or do you want to spend time with your dad going fishing, you know? But what's more important to the child? Well, it's not, the money's not that important. It's fellowship with my father. Mm-hmm. Right? It's fellowship with the people that I love and that I Challenging, doesn't it? Right? Uh, but that childlike simplicity where, you know, they're not that concerned about the love of money, are they? No, they're, they're concerned about fellowship with their father, right? They're concerned about fellowship with their mother and with their friends. You know, so the rich young ruler, if he could be like a little bitty child, he would be willing to let go of that, I think. He would be willing to let go of those uh, adult hindrances for him to press into the kingdom. And um, it makes some references uh, in other places that this rich young ruler, he like ran up to him. So again, I think it's very possible um, that as Jesus was blessing these little bitty infants, saying, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and such is the kingdom of heaven. You need to be converted as a little child to enter into the kingdom. While he's blessing these little ch- children is when the rich young ruler ro- runs up and you have this interaction. <laughs> and he should have been able to look at that little bitty child and say, Man, Jesus is touching him and praying over him. But yet he chose to go away sorrowful because he was too concerned about his possessions. <laughs> He should have took a second look at that little bitty child, right? The little bitty child was not concerned about all of those things, and I think it hindered the rich young ruler 
from pressing into the kingdom and enjoying the privileges of the kingdom of heaven. Instead, he pierced himself through with many sorrows. Um, let's conclude by going to First uh, Corinthians chapter 14. Um, just because we have this example of um, childlike humility and childlike forgiveness and childlike unattachment to riches, uh, etc., etc., um, just because Jesus gave the example of his children doesn't mean we need to be childish. You know, we need to be adults. We need to make adult decisions. And um, he actually rebuked the uh, people in Hebrews, um, speaking in a spiritual sense, that you should have been maturing more. You know, I wanted to teach you more. Uh, there's some things that I think you really need to know, but you're not mature enough to understand them. You should have been maturing to such a degree, um, but instead, you're still a babe in Christ and you're not ready to partake of the, the meat yet. You're still partaking of the milk. Okay, so we need to mature spiritually, right? And just as a side note, it's, it's very interesting to think about all the different times about how Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit <coughs> in the New Testament uh, describes God's children as being babes, right? Babes in Christ. And um, how uh, God hid these things from the wise and prudent, but revealed them unto babes. Uh, it's a very good study if if you have time to to map this out in the New Testament. All of the different references to young children being the example of discipleship in a lot of different ways. <clears throat> and in First Corinthians fourteen, in verse twenty. Brethren, be not children in understanding. Okay, so you need to mature, right? You don't need to don't need to stay on that milk of the word. I mean, you would be very concerned about a child that age-wise, you know, if you've been in the church for twenty years, what would you be concerned about a a twenty-year-old? First of all, you wouldn't even get to full maturity if you didn't, in a physical sense, you wouldn't even get to what a normal twenty-year-old would look like if you're still partaking of milk. No, you got to eat some real food. You got to eat some meat, right? And if you don't, you're going to be malnourished. Okay? So we need to be progressing. We need to um, be partaking of more meat as we grow in spiritual maturity. <clears throat> Brethren, be not children in understanding. We need to be growing in, in that. But in malice, be ye children. But in understanding, be men. Right? Like we said earlier, um, the forgiving nature of children and malice. Now, <laughs> you can see kids showing some malice one, one to another from time to time. Uh, however, the general disposition of, of children uh, will be very kind and be very gracious and unpretentious and, and, and ultimately, even if they have some malice and some conflict, it's very for a very short period of time, right? They forgive one another quickly. They restore fellowship. <laughs> you, you don't agree with Elliot? He's <laughs> too adult, Mike. Well, I'm sure none of the Mosley boys have any malice. <laughs> Would you like a rebuttal to that? Uh, anyway, good to know you're paying attention to the afternoon service, especially the young children. So um, I, I've had a 
privilege to be here. You know, I think the Spirit's blessed our time together and uh, good to meet many new faces. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And I pray the Lord will richly bless you and, and pray for you. I pray for your pastor and pray God will bless his ministry in this area and the church as a whole, your ministry to the community that you serve. Mm-hmm. And God bless you. Amen, brother. That was a, that was a treat. Um, I'm going to invite you and Sister Bethany to come up here and we're going to strike hands.